Please remain standing. Let me read for you the text today out of the book of James. We'll be reading the last part of the reading the last part of the first chapter. I want to first remind you of the thesis, uh, which is verses one through through eight. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the twelve tribes that are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So we talked about how resisting instability, finding stability, is a significant concern of James, which allows you to be able to give a credible profession. So we're in part D of the chiasm today, um, which has to do with the right and wrong responses to wisdom. talks about the displaying of a credible profession versus a vain profession. So let's read that text. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and does not, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Verse 26. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So that's the end of the chapter. All right, you may be seated. Apparently the uh, restroom is clear, so just if you go in, please lock it after you finish, and that will be how we can minimize the concern for today. All right, so verse 21, therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So if we look at this, we're, we're moving into a discussion that's going to hit upon liberty at verse 25 and the law of liberty. The law, that same law will be called a royal law, law for kings. Now, when we consider the idea of being freed from the filthiness, right? We just sang Psalm 119 about the idea of cleansing the way. The law of God helps to cleanse the way. And it also gives us a lamp for our feet. The Word of God is what we need to cleanse us. Remember back at, in verse 20, we were told to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. And that listening is in the context principally of the Word of God. So it's valuable to apply in general, to have discussions that make it so you can listen and avoid unnecessary strife. But that's the specific sense of the text has to do with listening, being quick to listen to the Word of God. And so, because we should be quick to listen to the Word of God, we should therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. Now, this laying aside is sort of a laying aside of fetters. It is a laying aside of burdens things that enslave, things that slow down, things that prevent good action. It is a filthy rubbish and a hoarding of junk. 
That's what the abundance of wickedness is. It's this overflow of wickedness, this abundance of wickedness. You're, you're hoarding to yourself. You're greedy for junk. And it prevents you from being able to make use of what is good. It clutters out on your schedule the things that are good to do. It takes up the space that would be useful for productive and good things. It's a filthiness. We are to receive with an awareness of the need that we have for self-government the implanted word. Right? It says, receive with meekness the implanted word. This is the word that makes you free. This is the word that is able, that is powerful to save. Now that word meekness, prautos in the Greek, can be translated humility. Self-control, you'll see gentleness, meekness is common, common translations. Remember, gentleness or meekness are about controlling your strength. It's about controlling your strength. Rather than using your strength for filthiness or for the overflow of wickedness, using your strength in such a way as to govern yourself for liberty, for what is good. And in particular here, the idea of the meekness is really pointing to a sort of humility. And not exalting of yourself unduly. It's a self-controlling thought. In this context, the humility would be to not exalt your own wisdom above the wisdom of God. And to be humble enough to recall your need for a word from heaven. So that need to receive the implanted word with meekness or with humility. Receive the implanted word. Now, This implanted word is able. It is able to save your souls. The the word is able there sort of masks the degree of power. If you're at all familiar with T.D. Jakes, you'll hear him talk about dunamis. Um, I understand he has a number of heretical doctrines. I'm not recommending the man, but he has made famous the word dunamis because it's the root of the word dynamite. Okay, and it means power. Okay, so dynamite is power rock. Okay? Now, that idea that there is a dunamis or power, that's the root there. That's the word that's translated is able. It's powerful to save. It's powerful to save. So this is not just an ability that's restrained. This is an actualized ability. It's powerful to save. It does save. God does not have the word returned void to him, but it accomplishes every purpose for which he sends it. It saves everyone he intends to use to save. He uses the word to save all his, and he saves all of his using the word. And it's able to save the soul. Psychos. The root there is psyche. We get the word psychology from that. The psychos. The word is able to save your psyche, your soul, your mind, your spirit, your heart, your, your whole man. The inward man, which governs the outward man, is able to be saved by this word. The anthropology and psychology of the Bible are right and true. Empirical studies will either make up vanities stumble over a truth that's laid bare in the Word of God accidentally and then incorporate it into their false system. Or, they will steal their insights from Christianity and give the credit to Baal. We should appeal to the Word of God. Our psychology comes from God's Word. Our anthropology comes from God's Word. We don't derive it from something else. We don't have wisdom in us sufficient to build up a proper definition of man. We need a word from heaven to give to us an understanding of the fact that we are image bearers of God and that we are to be like Christ. This word is able, is powerful, is effectual to save your souls. To save your souls from wrath, to save your souls from sin and misery, This word is powerful to reorder your soul to save you from yourself and your own wicked desires. 
This word is able to reorder your psyche. Slavery to sin is to be displaced by liberty. Remember, liberty is the ability to do the righteousness of God. Sin is slavery, and it is to be displaced by the liberty of righteousness, by receiving the implanted word. The implanted word is able to save your souls. It can free your soul. And it can therefore free your body from service to sin to service to righteousness. So we are taught here about justification by faith alone, and we're also taught about sanctification by faith alone. Sanctification is not by works. Sanctification is by faith. You do not become more holy, ex opere operato, when you do something God commands. The externals are not powerful, they're not sufficient to make it so that you are saved in the broad sense. They are not able to sanctify you. Sanctification is effectually by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's by illumination. Just as the initial giving of faith is monergistically given by God, by His power, so each additional proposition illuminated to your mind is by the sovereign work of God. The difference is that now, already having faith, we don't have to always resist it. We are able now to also seek it. We've been given faith. We can now seek it. And we are given outward and ordinary means that we're to pursue because God promises that the general tendency is when you apply those outward and ordinary means by faith, he gives more faith. But it's not the reading of the word or the hearing of the preaching that brings new illumination. Those things are means. The effectual worker is the Holy Spirit. The effectual worker is the Holy Spirit. And so... Sanctification is God taking the word and illuminating your mind to see it, to believe it. And he causes good works to flow out of it. The relationship of good works to growth and sanctification is the relationship to prayer and growth and sanctification. You pray, that doesn't effectually cause you to grow. The answering of the prayer effectually causes you to grow. You read the word, and that doesn't effectually cause you to grow. The illumination by the Spirit effectually causes you to grow. The outward and ordinary means, apart from the blessing of God, will not cause you to grow in faith. We are commanded to use the outward and ordinary means, and we are not to put our trust in the means Baptism, the Lord's Supper, the preaching of the Word, the reading of the Word, the singing of psalms, these things are outward forms and they are commanded. And if we don't use them, we are failing to worship God in the way He's appointed. He's commanded us to do these things. And He's attached a promise to them that He will use them when they are used in faith, when the prayer for God's blessing is upon them, to build us up. But the power is in God's decree. The power is in God's decree. And so the word of God is able to come to us in the form and the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit to cause the word to be in us. That implanting occurs by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the implanted word is powerful to save. That implanting results in the bearing of fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. And so there is much to rejoice over. And the humility with which we approach the implanted word is this. I cannot by my own intelligence. I cannot by my own diligence. I cannot by simply pounding my ears with sermons cause myself to grow in sanctification. I need the blessing of God. To fail to seek these things and to fail to place the mind upon them is sin. It's neglect. We should not neglect, avoid, resist, or deny the Word of God. But even those who do, God can powerfully save if the Word is preached and the Holy Spirit illuminates. Great rebels can be turned into great allies and servants of Christ by the sovereign power of the Holy Spirit. We present the word and we rely upon the Holy Spirit to take the city. Now, we should not 
just be hearers of the word. The doing of every ordinance of Christ is an outward and ordinary means whereby we are encouraged that God will attach growth in sanctification. So you need to pursue the duties that God commands. Ask for God for the strength to do them and ask for God to bless them and use them to cause you to know more. We do not approach good works with a self-reliance. We do not act as though we have the power in ourselves to do them. And we do not act as though if we just do them and grind it out that we will grow in wisdom. The doing it on our own power is a dangerous thing. So I'm not appointing to you some mystical sense of feeling the power of God flowing through you. This is not, God is not cheap. What we are talking about here is a conscious awareness of the fact that you don't have the power yourself to do good works. And a conscious awareness that if you do the good works, you're still relying upon God to cause you to grow. You do what God commands, be able to show that God commands it, and do it for the glory of God, and that is the life that accords with growing in wisdom. That is what God has said. These are the means we're to apply. But the means are not powerful or virtuous in themselves apart from the blessing of the Holy Spirit. So be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. You see, this is an example of somebody hearing the word or reading the word and then walking away and not being transformed by it. Does that terrify you? Looking in the mirror and not remembering what you saw? So you must look in the mirror. We're commanded to look in the mirror and you must pray for God to bless it, to cause you to remember, to not forget, to grow in faith, to have unbelief and lies, self-deception removed, that the light of the Spirit would scatter the darkness of your flesh, the darkness of unbelief. Verse 25, But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. A motive is put forward now. God motivates us with promises. He pulls upon our rational faculties. He does not just say, do the right thing because it's the right thing. He says, do the right thing. It's in your interest. It's in your interest. It's how you seek your own good. If you look into the perfect law of liberty, and you continue in the perfect law of liberty, and you're not a forgetful hearer, but instead a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. There's a promise of blessing. Now, the curse, back in Genesis 3, right? we have... Toil, which is ineffectual working. We have strife in terms of the relationships that exist between persons, even in the home, the mother with child and the mother with the the wife with the husband. And we also have death, physical death. There is all the things that lead up to it. Old age, sickness, and death. So we have the physical curse. Now, that physical curse, in terms of Physical death puts a limiter on our time here, which makes it so that you start to get a sense of panic about what am I going to do? I have very little time. What am I going to do? There's so much to do. And if what you work on is wasted and doesn't have progress, that panic can set in more deeply. You go, how can I do things that are established? We look to the Lord to establish the work of our hands. And if you do things by the means that God has revealed, the perfect law of liberty, 
You continue in that. You are steadfast in it. You don't forget. You continue to retain it. And you do what is commanded. There's a blessing on that. That blessing, that blessing to establish and to progress, to advance the work, He's blessed in what He does. So that the way that we escape that panic of the shortness of time is realizing that it's God who establishes the work and we trust Him to do that. We pray for Him to do that. We trust Him to do that. And we act in accordance with the prayer. We don't just say, be warmed and filled. We then actually give things for warmth and filling. We apply the law. We pray and we apply the law. And we trust God to bring the fruit. Now, in terms of relations, it's the same sort of thing. How do you have peace? How do you avoid strife? How do you make it so that there's covenantal bonds that last? The same thing. You do what God commands. You apply the means. You go through trying to be charitable, trying to overlook, trying to go through conflict resolution, seeking to have relationships that are bound in covenant, seeking to bring people into covenant. And you seek to have peace in that context. You look for unity. You, you, your goal is to spread the knowledge of the truth. You, te- you seek to take the ones that are less knowledgeable and you try to disciple them. But just because you say the words doesn't mean that they'll learn. So you pray. God will bless it. And you trust Him to establish the work of your hands. And you seek to resolve conflicts. And you seek to make it so that those have a durable peace by doing what God commands. So how about toil? The curse of toil is overcome by doing work in the way that God commands and praying for the blessing of God upon it and relying upon Him to bring the fruit. This is true for all of these areas. The curse in all of these areas is overcome. And the law of God applied when we think about the physical body, for example. When we apply the law of God and keep the seventh commandment in terms of moderation and self-government and avoid gluttony and laziness and asceticism and all of the things on either side of the road, right? those tend towards life. You can hit by a bus over real quick. Healthy eating doesn't typically stop buses. But they tend towards long life. And so we see the blessing on the one who does when he does what the word, the law of liberty, commands. So that's the general tendency. There's not a tension there. There's not a contradiction there. It's not a mystery. It's plain. It's been revealed. We are to do what God has commanded, and we are to realize that we have zero power to bring about the effect. That's not a contradiction. That's not a thing that demotivates. What motivates is the fact that God says, generally speaking, He gives this result for this action. And when He doesn't give that in this life, you know what He always does? He always gives a reward in the resurrection. For every time we apply the law of God and there is no reward here. You get both sometimes. You get one always. So the reward is a motive. It's not irrational. We rely upon God and we use the means He's appointed. We have a general expectation and a threatening that if we try to build with something else, guess what's going to happen? We're going to make hay and stubble and wood and it's going to burn. It's going to be shown to be junk work. It's totally rational. It's not a tension. It's not unresolvable paradox. It's abundantly clear and it's simple. And the reason people find a reason to say that there's a tension is because they don't like God being God. They would rather be God. God's not running for God. He's God. He does what He wants in the heavens and the earth and in the seas. So this idea of liberty... perfect law of liberty is laid out for us throughout the scriptures 
given to us in summary form in love God, love neighbor. The Ten Commandments summarize for us that. And if you don't have a deep understanding of the Ten Commandments, you're not going to see how they are sufficient for all of life. You're not going to see how they're sufficient for all of life. So you need to have a deep understanding of the Ten Commandments. A deep understanding of the Ten Commandments helps you to see how every choice you ever make is governed by the law, by the Ten Commandments, by the two great commandments. You study the law, you get a deep knowledge, it helps you to have purposeful action everywhere. So I want to talk about Christian liberty. I have a doctrinal section, and I'm going to have you go to that. It's at the end of the handout. Okay? I'm going to talk about Christian liberty for a second. Chapter 20 of the Confession lays out what Christian liberty is. Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. You need to get this, you need to have this very clearly in mind. When we talk about Christian liberty, we're not talking about license to sin. When we talk about liberty of conscience, we're not talking about the freedom to do whatever you want. Whatever you happen to think is right. The basic idea of Christian liberty is the ability to do what's good. Hopefully that's starting to become intolerably repetitive. The ability to do what is good. And liberty of conscience is the freedom from the doctrines and commandments of men to only have your conscience bound by the Word of God. Your conscience is not free from the Word of God. That is wickedness. That is overflow of wickedness. That's slavery to sin. So section 1 of the Confession. Chapter 20 of Christian Liberty and Liberty of Conscience. The liberty which Christ has purchased for believers under the Gospel... About the new covenant is basically what that's talking about. The, the new administration of the covenant of grace. The liberty which Christ has purchased for believers under the new covenant consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin. The condemning wrath of God. The curse of the moral law. Those are all powerful things to be freed from. We are free from the guilt of sin. Christ paid for it. We're freed from the condemning wrath of God. There's no guilt of sin, and therefore there's no basis for His judgment of hatred. There's no basis for His judgment of hatred. If Christ paid for you, you have no guilt of sin. If Christ paid for you, there's no basis for the wrath of God toward you. One of the reasons it's very important for us to hold to the doctrine of limited atonement. Christ only paid for the elect. He paid for anybody else. God's either a universalist, which makes him a liar if you've read the Bible much, or it makes him unjust because he punishes those whose debt had been paid. Limited atonement is necessary. It is a biblical doctrine. It is logically necessary as well. So we are freed from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, and the curse of the moral law. Christ took the curse for us, which is a sign of wrath. And in their being delivered from the present evil world, bondage to Satan and dominion of sin. There's the three enemies. World, flesh, devil. He freed us from them, from their reign. We've been liberated to the glorious reign of the Spirit rather than the flesh. We've been liberated to be under King Jesus and not under King Satan. And we have been freed from the world to be a part of the church. That is a glorious society of saints. That is our freedom. We are free from the evil of afflictions, which means rather than afflictions being for our harm, when you suffer, count it all joy. Because God's using it to give you patience. And He's using it as a trial to give you rewards if you succeed. A blessedness in addition to your salvation. The evil of afflictions is taken away. The sting of death is gone. We die, but we will be raised. We die, but our lives are meaningful. They are under heaven, not under the sun. The victory of the grave is taken away. The grave laughs at us. Death smiles at us. And we aren't just stuck smiling back. We win. The last enemy to be overcome is death. We will be raised. The grave is not victorious. Christ already conquered it. 
He was risen on the third day. He's ascended now. He's at the right hand of the Father. Will He not raise you? Everlasting damnation is gone for us. We have a freedom to access the throne of God. You can walk in and He doesn't have to raise the scepter to say you won't die. He has you written on the board. You are allowed in at any time. You come as you see fit and you jump to the head of the line. Anything you want from your Father King, you ask Him. And He desires your good. And He powerfully accomplishes your good. You have free access to the throne of grace. We are free now to yield obedience to Him. We have been saved from a master that is wicked whose wages are horrible. And we have a master who is righteous, whose wages are unbearably generous. We are freed from obeying out of a slavish fear. We're not just doing it in order to obtain our own righteousness, but rather we have a righteousness that cannot be taken away and we are adopted children. And so we have a childlike love and a willing mind. That's the freedom. All of these things were common to believers under the law in the Old Covenant. All of these things were common to believers in the Old Covenant. But under the New Covenant, the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged. You read all that, and you were panting after the list is done. What else is there to ask for? For we get more. This more is the reason why we have better promises. These are the better promises of our new administration of the covenant. It's the same covenant with all the same benefits, but we also have promises of greater success, greater effect, greater gifts. These are the things, and greater knowledge. So let's, let's look through here. But under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged in their freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law. The complexity and outward pomp and glory of the Old Covenant has been removed from us. We do not have to do that. We have a simplicity of the new covenant. And that simplicity is freeing. That simplicity is freeing. We are freed from that ceremonial law which the Jewish church was subjected to. We have a greater boldness of access to the throne of grace because we know with greater fullness what has already been done as opposed to awaiting it. We have a fuller communications of the free spirit of God. There's a greater knowledge that we have because we have a completed canon. Then believers under the law did ordinarily partake of. So we have we enjoy communion of the saints more fully than they did. We have the gifts more fully. Those gifts are more effectual. We have a full canon and we are growing in maturity as a church to have a greater knowledge. So whereas the Trinity was a doctrine that you can find hints of in some of the rabbinical writings, now there is not a child in the church who has not heard of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, triune God. So think about the degree to which the maturity of the church is greater now than in the Old Covenant. Section 2. This is our liberty. We have this highway to travel. And so now, section 2. God alone is Lord of the conscience. We are free from fetters. Section 1 is about our freedom to make progress. Section 2 is about our freedom from fetters. We will not be held back. We will not be overcome. We will not be restrained. The gates of hell will not be victorious over us. We will batter them in and we will take their stuff. God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to His Word or beside it. And you could put a period there. The comma and the explainer afterwards are fine, but it would also be true to understand it without a limiter clause. God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to the Word 
or beside it. That is the regulative principle applied to authorities. And then it says, in matters of faith and worship. So think about this. In matters of faith, hey, what area of uh, life does your faith cover? Oh, all of the areas? So you see how the, the period could fit right there? Because in matters of faith, we're talking about what you're to believe and what you're to believe would apply to every area of life, every place where there's rational choice. And then in worship. So we have the doctrine of sola scriptura, matters of faith, and the doctrine of the regulative principle, matters of worship. So that to believe such doctrines, okay, believing doctrines that are given by men, or to obey such commands, commands that are given by men, out of conscience, is to betray true liberty of conscience. Okay, think about this. If somebody says, hey, I'm a pastor, so you've got to believe what I'm saying, and you go, well, I do need to. I need to obey this guy because he's an authority. You have betrayed. You have been traitorous to liberty of conscience. I had to leave a church in protest once, and in the process of talking to that session, the pastor told me that I had a duty to submit to the presbytery when it made a judgment, even if it couldn't be proven. And I read him this. And he went, well, you haven't persuaded me. That was his response. The reason he said that is because he knew that the confession contradicted what he had just said. And he became a slave to men. It's disgusting. God alone is Lord of the conscience. He left you free from the doctrines and commandments of men. If you believe doctrines that come from men's hearts or demons' mouths out of conscience because you think that their station requires you to believe it, you have betrayed true liberty of conscience. And you're requiring an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience and you destroy liberty of conscience, and you destroy reason. The same thing applies to commandments. If you obey commandments from men that are not from the Word of God, out of conscience, as though they have the right to impose them, you betray liberty of conscience, you require an implicit faith, and an absolute and blind obedience, and you destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. So, when we look at the civil magistracy and the church and the household and the individual, there's a duty to prove authority. Okay? Christians ought to be libertarian in this sense. Rights come from God and authority grants come from God. To be a Christian libertarian is to acknowledge the legitimate authority of the state to enforce both tables of the law. To be a Christian libertarian is to acknowledge that churches are not just voluntary associations, but you're required to join or start a church. To be a Christian libertarian is to acknowledge the covenant of the household and the authority of the rod of parents. You've probably heard some people that say, I'm trying to make sure that my children are raised in volunteerism, and so I don't want to use the rod. That is a person who hates their child. A Christian Libertarian understands his individual rights come from God and they do not go any further than the law of God grants. And so a Christian libertarian is also theonomic. He acknowledges that law comes from God and God alone. These things fit together. No law, no rights. No rights. Tyrants don't like rights. No rights, no law. They go together. They're a package. They imply each other. So we are not anarchists. We acknowledge legitimate authority. We are not to be tyrants or slaves. We do not acknowledge illegitimate authority. Section 3. They who upon pretense of Christian liberty do practice any sin or cherish any lust 
do thereby destroy the end of Christian liberty. Right? They're destroying the goal of Christian liberty. This is the individual abusing individual liberty. They who upon pretense of Christian liberty do practice any sin or cherish any lust, do thereby destroy the end of Christian liberty, which is that being delivered out of the hands of our enemies, we might serve the Lord out of fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all the days of our life. That's what we're freed to. We're freed from our enemies to service to the Lord. And so, to take our Christian liberty and use it for service to our enemies and warfare against our Lord is abominable and disgusting. And the Lord will not stand by idle and watch it continue. When you argue with somebody and you tell them, for example... You know, we should sing psalms. I can prove it because we're commanded. And we shouldn't sing other stuff. I can't prove that. And they say, oh, you're putting a yoke upon us. No, I'm guarding your liberty so that men don't throw whatever songs they feel like on you and say, offer this to God. It's a clean sacrifice. It's acceptable to God. And you have to do it. How about liturgical dance? How about the old covenant ceremonies? How about whatever? Why not just throw footballs in the public worship service? It's not forbidden, therefore it's permissible. Throw, show your fellowship by throwing the football to your neighbor across the room. Catch that ball of love. Let's replace the Lord's Supper with honey and milk. Because we're in a land of prosperity. And we have the blessings of God. Why think about death and curse and crushing? Why not instead think about the prosperity and the benefits? Let's replace the bread and wine with honey and milk. Milk and honey. Those things offend your soul? I pray so. They ought to. They ought to vex your righteous soul because they are violations of the regulated principle. Anybody who says that trying to carefully guard liberty of conscience by applying the regulated principle is a type of bondage doesn't know what liberty is and does not see their bondage. Section 4. And because the power which God has ordained and the liberty which Christ has purchased are not intended by God to destroy, but mutually to uphold and preserve one another. Okay, So, liberty and power. Okay, This is liberty and law. This is the authorities that God has ordained. And liberty. Those things are designed to uphold each other. They're intended by God not to destroy, but to mutually uphold and preserve one another. They who upon pretense of Christian liberty shall oppose any lawful power or the lawful exercise of that power, whether it be civil or ecclesiastical, resist the ordinance of God. And you could add in economical, home. right? Civil, ecclesiastical, or household authority. If they are legitimate, if it's a lawful power with a lawful exercise of power. Hey, you notice, did Thou Ten remind you of this at all? a lawful exercise, you're resisting God. Lawful power, lawful exercise. If you resist those, you're resisting God. And for their publishing of such opinions or maintaining of such practices as are contrary to the light of nature or to the known principles of Christianity, there's the covenanted form, the known principles of Christianity. The light of nature being the logical implications whether concerning faith, worship, or conversation, right? Conversation is, is not just talking in the parlor. Conversation in the older form is referring to your behavior, okay? How you behave. So it's concerning faith, worship, or behavior. So this is the faith and practice type of distinction here, which you see over and over again in the scriptures. A covenanted unity has a unity of confession and a unity of practice. A unity of confession, a unity of practice. That's what we're called to. We, we covenant ourselves to a confession of faith, and we covenant ourselves to a rule of practice. And the goal is to prove all the things in those from the Word of God, and as the church matures, it's going to have more and more that it's systematized and organized from the Word of God. 
and for their publishing of such opinions or maintaining of such practices as are contrary to the light of nature or to the known principles of Christianity, whether concerning faith, worship, or conversation, or to the power of godliness, or such erroneous opinions or practices as either in their own nature or in the manner of publishing or maintaining them, right? So the, the falsehood itself or the way of publishing or maintaining the false opinions are destructive to the external peace and order which Christ has established in the church. They may lawfully be called to account. Now, you, you think you can say whatever you want and not be called to give an account? You're wrong. There's lawful authority to do that. On the other side of this, authority may not proceed against a person without a due process of law. A public trial with due process of law. Church and state. I have dealt with churches that also have sought to exercise church discipline and the keys without public process. And when pushed... The demand for public process simply shut down. That is tyranny. That if our church ever does that, it loses the mark of discipline. If there is no public process for discipline, there is no lawful discipline. So that is necessary as a mark of the church for good government. Public trials for public matters. Christ is established in the church. They, must, they may lawfully be called to account and proceeded against by the censures of the church and by the power of the civil magistrate. If you do not think that there are words that people can say that the civil magistrate should punish, you need to read Deuteronomy 13. Now, that section of the confession marvelously captures for us our liberty our Christian liberty and our liberty of conscience you ought to be a lover of liberty you ought to hate tyranny people who love liberty typically defend it at great cost to themselves without great reward in this life but they preserve something that's precious for generations yet unborn and they create a norm a custom, a habit of behavior that other men begin to laud. Defenders of liberty and defenders of the truth alike suffer at great cost to themselves for a public good. And it is a righteous and noble thing. Now, back to page three. We look at liberty in the various covenantal spheres the individual has Augustinian liberty and liberty of conscience from the doctrine and commandments of men the individual is to be governed by the word and is to have a regulative principle of life and a doxological focus okay, the regulative principle of life you're looking for the word of God to authorize any act to show that you're free to do it and the doxological focus Everything you do needs to be for the glory of God. That's the good life. That's the free life. That same idea was clearly propounded in the chapter we just read. Now, the individual, we talk about Augustinian liberty, and you need to be aware of this. You need to understand our doctrine of liberty. The ability to do what's good is what Augustinian liberty is. And there are fourfold, there's a fourfold state of man in history. Before the fall, Adam was able to sin and able to do righteousness. He was made righteous, but able to sin. At the fall, he sinned. Post-fall and before regeneration, man is a slave to sin, totally incapable of any good. There is nothing good in him. He is only able to sin continuously, and he always does. Every moment is a moment he's sinning in and doing no righteousness. That is man unregenerate after the fall. After regeneration, or before the glorified state, man can start to do good things. He can do righteousness, but he's still sinning all the time. He's in constant transgression of the law. There is disorder in his soul, but yet he also does things in faith. He also does things that are right. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. 
The glorified state is the most free state. We are only able to do righteousness always with no mixture of sin. You will not be able to sin. You cannot sin. You will not sin. That is the most free condition. That is the glorified state. Now, page 4. Self-rule, by the covenant sphere of governing yourself, you have to exercise a rational rule of yourself according to the Word of God. This is talking about meekness above. This is that. Ruling yourself rationally in accordance with the Word of God. We need right content, right purpose, and right choice. You get knowledge from the Word of God. You get holiness to direct your purposes after the glory of God. And you have righteousness where you make right choices according to the law of God. We are to be prophets, priests, and kings. We are to work and to keep. We advance knowledge and holiness and righteous choice and we guard them. And as we do that, we're exercising a spiritual dominion. That manifests itself in a material dominion where we rule the non-rational creatures well, we apply the law to them, and we order them in such a way that it helps other people to see the reign of Christ. And then we take over the institutions and we govern them well. We rise by serving and not by usurping. And man is meant to work in these covenant spheres. Okay, this is, These are the focal points. Your work is for the glory of God by helping to improve yourself as an individual, helping to advance your household, helping to advance the church, helping to advance the state. Those are the focal points. That's where the work gets done. It's a simple life. It's a fulfilling life. It's a full life. When your eyes are open to your duty, you will find there is not enough time and you better redeem it because there's too much to do. And yet, the simplicity of it at first is something that men kick against. Those are the points of focus and those are the loci of authority. Those are the places of power. Those are where things get done. And which power is given to which loci is very important to determine. That is the difference between usurpation versus lawful use of authority. That's the difference between tyranny and liberty. Knowing which powers belong in which spheres and being careful to guard them from usurpation and also from neglect. Caesar hates the church. Why does Caesar hate the church? Because the church knows about the spheres. The church knows which power goes where. The church says no. The church says we will not worship you. The church says there is a king above you and his name is Jesus Christ. The church restrains tyrants. It seeks to bind them down with the law. To chain them. So this working and keeping by the institution is important. And if you want to be useful in any institution, you need to govern your body well and your soul well and your property well. You notice the book of Proverbs over and over again deals with all of those things. It talks about dealing with the soul well, dealing with the body well, dealing with property well, and the idea of property being for public service. Why do you seek property? So that you can do good to others. Work so that you have enough to provide for yourself and have something to give. And a part of that giving is having additional resources so you can do public service in the church and in the state. Work. We are called to fill our days with work. God gave us six days to work. Six of them. Six of them. And one for corporate worship. Six days out of seven. So, I've tried to lay out here the management of the body, health, skill, beauty, property, what you consume, capital put together, being purposive in terms of how you deal with the property and manage it and the, the beauty of property, and being liberal versus covetous, being free in your giving. Page five, household government. 
So the individual is governed with the word of God and the conscience, right? The, the conscience is the source of pain. And the word of God informs the conscience. The household is governed by the word and the rod. And so there is to be a ministry of education in the house, a ministry of health, and a ministry of welfare. See those relate to the individual in terms of the rational rule, the bodily rule, and the property rule. Okay, the household does that, and it's the place where there's a division of labor. Okay, you organize that, you do that more. And so when the state takes on a ministry of education, health, and welfare, what have they stolen it from? They've stolen it from the household. It's their effort to make you a slave. The household needs to take, it needs to have mature people ruling it. Right? You need to be able to govern yourself. You want to have two people that are able to govern themselves get married. You want them to be able to then have children and servants that they are able to help to habituate self-control in. And there are practices of station and order there. You know, we, we, we think, well, you know, if we see the president, I'll get up and stand. Okay, great. But children, do you stand for your fathers and mothers? Because the habits of respect are built in the home. Charity begins at home. Love is trained in the home. You need to know your stations well. I've got them listed out here. And I've got some warnings. So you, you know we talk about these a lot. The husband, master, father, the wife, mistress, mother, the servant, the child, son, daughter, the young man, and the young woman. The young man's warned against the gang of the wicked and the harlot. And the young woman's to be warned against the gaggle of gossips and the bad boys, who are not men. They're boys. There is a need to avoid order turning into the fear of man. So when you train people under your authority, you don't want to train them into a blind obedience. Some people will tell you, don't explain yourself to your children. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Explain yourself to your children. And spank them. There is a duty to both teach them and also to give them orders. Now, there is a time for needing to obey and a time for explanation. You require obedience unless somebody can prove that it's sin, and you explain yourself after the fact. Show yourself meek and humble. Explain yourself to your children. Teach them. You can require obedience immediately unless they have an objection that it's sin, in which case you need to hear them out. But avoid turning the fear of man into the thing. It's about the fear of God. You don't want to train your children into blind obedience. The love for liberty and for lawful authority occurs in the home. So, there's a teaching that occurs with family worship. There's rebuke and correction. And the idea of setting up household law. If you want to rule your house well, putting down rules in writing making it very clear what the expectations are could be extremely helpful. And also having a written standard for penalties. General rule in my house, you do something that's a violation of the household rules, you get spanked three times. Why three? One, because the first one is always off, right? You always do it too hard or it's too soft. You can back off if it was too hard. You can lean in if it was too soft. Other reason, why? Why three? Because I need two to make that work. And I want to make sure that if they tell the truth, I can always reward them by taking away one stripe. And that's why. That's what we did as a minimum in our house, and that's why. There's a common expectation of it. You write things down. It helps people to understand that there's order. You talk about that. There can be things that you reward. In our house, we give out cash rewards for the memorization of a shorter catechism. Okay? Expectation that there are rewards for certain things. That there's, there's fruits for certain labor. That people keep parts of what they earn in our house. So, those are rewards. Penalties, plainly laid out, and an atmosphere of peace. So the idea of an atmosphere of peace, that requires charitable interpretation, overlooking offenses, and using Matthew 18 for conflict resolution. You talk to the person... And if you're going to do that, and you're the head of the house, your father or mother, 
I've written down here the duty of due process you've got. Due process isn't just in the church and the state. Due process occurs in the home as well. If you're going to deal with charges, there needs to be a claim and a basis from the Word of God for those charges. And that could be a household rule because the Bible gives the ability for the management of the property to the father and the mother so they can set rules that aren't just in the Scriptures. But show that. Cite that verse and then also cite your household rule. There needs to be an opportunity to defend yourself if you're being disciplined and evidentiary standards that are applied from the Word of God. A verdict needs to be announced. And if there's not, if there's not a guilty verdict, then there needs to be reconciliation. If the conflict's resolved, everybody acknowledges it. If it's a guilty verdict, there needs to be a sentencing with a just punishment. And that just punishment, there needs to be an opportunity to respond. There needs to be an opportunity to respond. So you tell them what the punishment is, and then you give them an opportunity to respond. And that ends with a reconciliation, with a proper apology, and the promises of forgiveness. Those don't have to be laid out explicitly, but they need to be remembered. And when you're not remembering them well, it's a good thing to lay them out explicitly. And so what you do is you train an atmosphere of peace where conflict gets resolved. You train an atmosphere of peace where conflict gets resolved. This is what you were given authority for, is to rule your house and to train up the people under your authority to righteousness. And so when you train them up in righteousness, charity starts at home, love starts at home, you're teaching, you're helping them to separate their in holiness, to have right loyalties, to have profitable employment and teamwork, and to put everybody to good work. Heads of house, you're responsible for making sure everybody's doing profitable work. You show them how to feast and have hospitality and to enjoy blessings. And you show them how to fast and mourn and sharing burdens. This has to occur in the household. This has to occur in the household or else they will have to learn it when they're old. And it is far easier to bend the sapling than it is to, build, to bend the full-grown oak. If you love your children, bend them while they are saplings. There's a restraint on government in the home. It is the Word of God. And we go to the church, it's the same. You have the Word and the keys. There's a restraint. When we talk about the restraint on the church, in terms of that, we talk about doctrine being restrained by the Bible, we call that sola scriptura. We talk about worship being restrained by the Bible, we call it the regulated principle. We talk about government being restrained by the Bible, it's called just a venom. Why so many names? Because theologians want to get paid. I don't know. Like, they want to make sure that it's real hard to get the degrees. These are just the sufficiency of Scripture applied in a bunch of ways. And this is, this is not necessary. You know, this is just sola scriptura applied to doctrine, worship, and government. I want to tell you those terms so you understand them. And they help to make little markers for you that help you to be able to differentiate uh, the application of these things. But this is just the Bible applied to doctrine, applied to worship, and applied to government. That's it. That's all it is. You read the chapter on the liberty of conscience that you, you not obey out of blind faith, right? You obey because it's demonstrable from the Word of God. So, I've laid out for you here the pieces of duties and the types of offices that exist in, inside of the church and the order that exists that you can find in the Scriptures. So that's all laid out there through page 7. And these things are all demonstrable. But... These are the only offices that exist. And so there are congregational assemblies, diaconal assemblies, and sessions of elders. Those are the governing bodies of the church. The offices are laid out. We've got those on those pages. You have elders that go to different grades of courts. Those are all demonstrable from the scriptures. But there's just two offices that are public governing offices, deacon and elder, and heads of house that are voting members, that are communicant members, that are men over 20. These guys are the ones that exercise the voting authority and can speak. These things are plain in the scriptures. The reason they are thrown off is the same reason the head coverings have been thrown off because of the advance of feminism in the 1960s and then because of, in earlier centuries, the throwing off of church government as plainly laid out in the scriptures. So state government. It's the word and the sword. When you talk about the regulated principle applied to the state, it's called theonomy. That word is a boogeyman word. It's kind of fun. 
kind of fun. You say theonomy, people say, so you believe that we can't eat shellfish? No, that's not, that's not, that's not what I mean. And so you have to define the term, and the point is that the state is restrained by Christ as king. His word is the source of all law. We have a duty to defend Christian liberty and to administer biblical justice. And so defining crimes and defining just penalties is the big difficulty for the state. It's a big difficulty for the state. So liberty is defended by the word of God there. So what have we just done? What have we done? We've walked through trying to show liberty defined in the spheres. The law of God is the law of liberty. There are no rights apart from the law of God. And the law of God is not the law of God in the last 25% of the Bible. The law of God is the law of God throughout the Bible. And if you do not read the Old Testament and try to carefully take its principles for self-government, household government, church government, and state government, you will find the New Testament is woefully insufficient to answer questions. And this is why the church has no respect for the sufficiency of God's word. It's because what they mean is the sufficiency of the New Testament. And the New Testament is not sufficient. It is insufficient. It relies upon the 75% of the scriptures that came before it. And so if we take the Old Testament seriously and don't think of it as the word of God emeritus, then what we're going to do is we're going to look for the assumption of continuation. We will read a command of God and say, unless he said, stop jumping, I'm going to keep jumping. When he orders us to do the thing, we don't assume it ends. We have to prove it ends. That is the only way to take seriously the Bible. That is the only way to have the sufficiency of the scriptures. And that is the only way to have a blueprint for liberty as an individual, a household, church, and state. Without it is tyranny, a binding of the conscience, an implicit faith, a blind obedience, and a betrayal against liberty and reason also. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members, and those with speaking rights. <clears throat>